Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, everyone hear me all right? Yeah? Okay. It's... Um, some churches you go to, you'll get a message on, on money every single week. Um, they usually give it just before the offering. Um, Anyone who's been with us for a while will know that we never do that. Um, I guess one of the advantages and one of the tough things about working your way through the Bible is like we just cover stuff as we get to it. And that means that you don't just cover your favourite pet topics. It also means that when you get to some tough things to hear, you've got to cover it. You, you've got to hear it because you're not missing anything out. And today's Bible reading hits us right where it hurts, right in the hip pocket. Uh, Jesus actually had quite a bit to say about money and he had quite a bit to say about what we do with it, quite a bit to say about our attitudes towards it. And usually what Jesus had to say about money is both blunt and confronting. And today's Bible reading is just that. It's blunt and it's confronting. Sadly, most times I've heard this passage preached on, preachers have done their best to remove the offence that it actually is. They've done their best to cut the guts out of it and to remove the challenge that it is to us personally and to our culture that we live in. Basically what they've done is they've dumbed it down so we don't find it quite so objectionable because it is objectionable. When you take that, as Jesus said it, it's very objectionable. And I suspect a fair bit of what I teach you today might be spent in undoing the work of some other Bible interpreters who have endeavoured to remove the offence that Jesus purposely put in there for us. You see, in our culture today, as it was in Jesus' day, wealth is most definitely seen as a blessing. Now there's a saying that goes, those people who say money can't buy you happiness don't know where to shop. Okay, you've heard that saying? Well, it's a saying, Roy, these days they say it. And there's an element of truth to that. I'm not going to get up here and say to you, if you lose all your money, you're going to be happier, because that's rubbish. A lot of, the lot of the poor is a hard life. It's a difficult life. And money definitely helps to make life a bit easier. What I am going to be saying to you is, in the eyes of the world... Wealth is a blessing, but Jesus warns us that usually wealth is a curse because riches on earth do not equate to riches in heaven. And earthly riches have the habit of keeping us back and keeping us from, from storing up those riches in heaven that are so much more important. A man came to Jesus and he asked him, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now that's how this whole story began. Now that might seem like a fair enough question, but it's not. You see, this young man, the same as many people today, believed that he had the power to gain eternal life in his hands. What good deed must I do to get eternal life? is what he is asking. He wasn't asking Jesus how I can get eternal life. He wasn't asking Jesus how to be saved to eternal life. He wanted to know what good deed he had to do to get it. And the very first thing that Jesus said to him gives us the key to this whole passage. Jesus said, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Okay, This young man believed that he was good. 
He thought that he could do good. He thought that if he did a particular good or a group of good deeds, then he would be rewarded with eternal life. That was all he had to do, he thought. But Jesus said to him right at the start that there is only one who is good. And that's something that he and we both have to get out of our heads. We have to get any notion that you are good right out of your head. Goodness is God's domain, not ours. The young man believed he was good. And yeah, he might have been goodish, but he could never be good enough. And neither can we. Salvation is a free gift from God. It cannot be gained by doing good deeds. Salvation cannot be bought. Salvation is gained through faith in the one who is good. Salvation is gained by confessing our badness and being forgiven of our badness by our Saviour who takes away our bad and fills us up with his good. But he's a pretty self-confident fellow, this, this young fellow, as are many people. And Jesus strung him along a little bit. Jesus used to do that to people. He'd sort of just give them enough enough rope. And Jesus said, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Erodo, Jesus, which ones? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Now, I can imagine this young fellow starting to smile about this stage. Yeah, I've done all that. Anything else? And Jesus said, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard that statement, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus cut him off at the knees. He just cut him right down to size. The young man was filled with pride. He was filled with a sense of self-righteousness, but it was very misplaced. And so Jesus cut him down to size. The young man had said, yep, I have loved my neighbour as myself. I've ticked that box. I've done that. And yet when Jesus challenged him to sell his possessions and give it to the poor, we can see the, the lie that that was. How could he have truly loved his neighbour as he loved himself if he had everything and there were beggars on the street? He had a wrong view of himself. He saw himself as good. In his mind, he had loved his neighbour as he loved himself, but that was a lie. And the challenge Jesus threw down to him was threefold. But it started with the word go. Go, sell what you possess, right? This young man, he couldn't follow Jesus until he had done that because that was something that was preventing him from following Jesus. So he had to go and sell what he had possessed, give to the poor, come, follow me. Do you realise that this was pretty much the classic call of Jesus to his disciples? Um, Jesus had called Peter to be his disciple. Peter was there fishing and Jesus said, did I say Peter was fishing and Jesus said, come be my disciple. And Peter left his nets, left his boat sitting there on the shore, left his livelihood and went off to follow Jesus. Matthew, the tax collector, was sitting at his tax booth. Jesus comes along and says, come 
follow me, be my disciple. He leaves his livelihood behind. He leaves the means by which he was able to extract a great deal of money out of people. He left that and went and followed Jesus. And now Jesus was calling another man, this rich young man. And we could be reading his name in the Bible as one of the great followers of Jesus Christ, but instead we only know of him as the sad sap who walked away from Jesus. He was called the same as the other disciples, but he walked away. Why? Because he loved his possessions more than Christ. Disciples of Jesus Christ daily have the challenge laid before them to live for the kingdom of heaven, not for the kingdom of the world. And when you come to Jesus, there's going to be stuff that you have to leave behind, just as there's stuff that I have to leave behind. For Peter, it was his fishing business. For Matthew, it was his tax collecting. For this rich young man, it was his possessions. But he couldn't do that. The cost was too great. And I have a sneaking suspicion it is that which we love most and never want to give up that Jesus tells us to leave so that we will follow him unhindered. If you love anything more than Christ, the one thing that you would hate to have to give up if he asked you to give it up, that's probably exactly the thing that you need to give up. Because Jesus wants us to follow him unhindered, valuing nothing above him, no wealth, no possessions, no activity, no person, so that nothing would be higher on our values list than Christ. And we learn this from his disciples. Peter said to him, look, we've left everything to follow you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. That's God's economy. Many who are first today will be last in the new kingdom, and the last first. In this world, those who are wealthy come out on top. True? Proverbs 10:15 says a rich man's wealth is his strong city the poverty of the poor is their ruin. Proverbs 13:23 says the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food but it is swept away by injustice. That's true, isn't it? That, by the way, if you're ever reading Proverbs, Proverbs state a fact that is generally true in what we see in the world, okay? It's not always true, but generally true. Um, Proverbs 14 verse 20 says, The poor is disliked even by his neighbour, but the rich has many friends. True? Generally, yes. In this world, the rich come out on top. 
But many who are first will be last. And the last first. That's good news for the poor. When Jesus first started his ministry, he said, I come to proclaim good news for the poor. And here it is. Many who are first will be last. And the last first. Do you really want to be on top in this world if it means you're going to be down the bottom of the heap in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's shocking enough, but then he said this, Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than what it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There's the offence. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's the offence. And that's exactly what many preachers try to remove from what Jesus said here. Now one explanation I've heard many times, and you may have heard it as well, is there's a hole in the city wall of Jerusalem and it's a small hole. So when the main gates are shut, there's just this small gate which there isn't room for a whole army to get through, but there's room for a single camel if you unload it for it to get down on its knees and shuffle its way through this small gate. And, and the saying goes that, that this little gate is known as the eye of the needle. Has anyone ever heard that teaching? Yeah, a few of you? Yep. Righto. It's pretty common. I've heard it a lot. Um, If you've heard that, please immediately unlearn what you've been taught. That's rubbish. Um, F.F. Bruce summarises what many good Bible scholars say. This charming explanation is of relatively recent date. Okay, In other words, the early church never knew this. Uh, There is no evidence that such an entrance was called the eye of the needle in biblical times. Okay, in other words, somebody's thought this could be a good explanation and they've made it up and they've taught it as fact. The simple fact of the matter is this. Jesus says what he means. And Jesus wasn't adverse to using what we call hyperbole, making huge, outrageous statement, but is actually true. Jesus took the example of their largest beast of burden, a camel, and their smallest aperture that he could think of, the eye of a needle. And he said it's easier for a camel to go through that needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Is that possible? Which is exactly what the disciples realised Jesus was saying. They didn't go, oh yeah, that gate's a small gate. Yeah, they have to get on the knees and struggle through. They didn't say that. They said... Well, who then can be saved? It's impossible. And it's impossible because a camel can't go through the eye of a needle. Even a little model camel can't go through a big needle even. And Jesus looked at them and agreed with them. With man, this is impossible. But then he said something. But with God, all things are possible. Right? This shook their religious traditions to the core. You see, in their view, 
wealth was a true blessing. Therefore, if you were blessed with God, you must have done something good to earn that. Therefore, God was rewarding you with wealth. And so then they'd look at that and go, well, if anyone's going to make it to eternal life, it's obviously those who are good, and we know who are good because they've already got the money, they're going to have eternal life. That was their way of thinking. Right? If I'm blessed in this life, I'll be blessed in the next. But Jesus turned that notion completely on its head. It's impossible for a rich person to gain eternal life, he said. But by the miracle of God, it is possible. Now, I want you to understand here as well, it's impossible for a poor person to have eternal life too. By our own strength. But by a miracle of God, it is possible. So with that in mind, is wealth a blessing or is it a curse? And before you consider this, I want you to get past the idea that you are one of the world's poor and that other people are the world's wealthy. Somebody once wrote a prayer. Dear Lord, I've been rereading the record of the rich young ruler and his obviously wrong choice, but it has set me thinking. No matter how much wealth he had, he could not ride in a car, have surgery, turn on a light, buy penicillin, hear a pipe organ, watch TV, wash dishes in hot running water, type a letter, mow a lawn, fly in an aeroplane, sleep on an inner spring mattress or talk on the phone. If he was rich, then what am I? You are not one of the world's poor. You are one of the world's rich, as am I. And we have to realise that. I know that's hard to get past sometimes when, when we realise, okay, well, we might be re- reasonably comfortable, but look at those other people who have so much more than us. Usually we compare ourselves to those who have more money than us and we say, well, even though, you know, I know I've got a lot of assets and so on, but I really don't have any money. I don't have any income to give away to the poor. Do you realise there was no mention made of, the, of this rich young man's income? There's no mention made of his disposable income, no mention made of, of his, um, the water cash in his pocket. It was his possessions that were holding him back. Jesus said, sell your possessions and give the money to the poor. That's how you store up treasure in heaven. You don't store up treasure in heaven by giving away your excess. You gain treasure in heaven by giving up what you treasure on earth. There's the reward. Your heart is moved with compassion. Your heart is moved with generosity to care for those who have nothing or to support ministry or whatever so people can hear the gospel who might not otherwise. And the Holy Spirit says, you need to give. And the inside of you goes, but I really like what I've got, or I am saving up for such and such, or I am paying off such and such. But when you listen to the Holy Spirit and you give, God rewards you. 
treasures in heaven. If we only ever give away our disposable income, nobody ever has to be generous with anything because let's be honest, we've all made it an art form to get rid of our disposable income. Or am I the only one who does that? To keep yourself out of cash so you don't really give anything away, a farmer just has to buy more land or more tractors, a wage earner just has to buy more houses or a newer car, a teenager needs to buy a new DVD or the latest PlayStation, you can soon do away with all your disposable income by turning it into possessions, something which all of a sudden you realise you can't live without. Don't fool yourself by saying, I don't have anything, I'm not rich. Have a look at what you've got. See what you have. I nearly cried one day when somebody who had three farms, six houses, countless cars and the best of everything complained that the government wouldn't subsidise their children's education because they had too many assets. Oh, we don't... We might have all this stuff, but we don't earn any money. They, the government should be paying for their education. I tried to explain to them... But even a person on a minimum $40,000 a year wage struggling to pay off their first home, they can't even get that government subsidy. Yeah, but at least they've got the money coming in. We don't have money. And I cried. I thought, how selfish have we become that we consider ourselves as the poor when elsewhere people, children go to bed hungry at night, their chump tummy churning because there's nothing in it. So is wealth a blessing or is it a curse? Well, it's both. Depends how you use it. Wealth gives people a self-sufficiency such that they will not turn to God. And in that sense, it is a curse. But wealth is also a blessing. There's a saying which is a great saying, but often it's misused. I'm blessed to be a blessing. Now, you may have heard that. And that's true. We are blessed to be a blessing to others. With wealth comes great responsibility. And we who are wealthy need to hear and understand that. With wealth comes great responsibility. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honours him. Proverbs 19.17 Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Proverbs 22 verse 9 Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. We are blessed to be a blessing. Unfortunately, most people I've heard say this about themselves, don't live it. They say it, but they don't live it. They give, but they give relatively little and keep a lot. They expand their possessions, they expand their lands, they expand what they have greatly and give relatively little. God does not bless us with wealth so that we can buy flasher cars, flasher houses, bigger farms, bigger barns, holiday homes or better wine. God blesses us with wealth 
so that we can be a blessing to others. Proverbs 28.27 says, Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides their eyes and don't want to look at the poor will call out, sorry, will get many a curse. Proverbs 21.13 says, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. With wealth comes great responsibility. The snare of riches, the snare of wealth, the snare of possessions is we put them before God. With God, it is possible for the rich to get eternal life. But it's very difficult. You see, when we have nothing, it's very easy to give it up. Um, But when you've got a lot... Managing what you have, being a good steward with what you have, protecting what you have, can consume you. Now, I'm not up here today saying, give everything away so that you're going to be better off with God. Don't don't just give everything away just for the sake of making yourself poor. That's not what I'm saying. Instead, what I'm saying is grow a generous heart. Learn to know what it really means to love your neighbour as yourself. That's the lesson that that rich young man needed to learn. How to love his neighbour as himself. Give generously. Give to the poor. Give to Christian ministries. When you give to the poor, you're storing up riches in heaven. Um... Alex said before, I'm offering good term deposits at the moment. Now, you're not going to get a better interest rate than converting earthly riches to heavenly riches. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you're going to buy your way into heaven. What I'm saying is the Lord rewards a generous heart. The Bible tells us when we give, to give cheerfully, not under compulsion. Like, don't go, oh, Michael said today we've got to give this away, so I'm going to give that away just so that I can get an extra room on my house in heaven. That's not what it's about. It's about being changed on the inside so that you have that generous heart that will give cheerfully. Give to the poor, give to Christian ministries, give to the needy. By the way, if you're looking for a Christian ministry to support, Bush Disciples funds are very low. Um, yeah, we're way behind. But that's enough of that. Um, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Give to the poor with a generous and loving heart. Support Christian ministries. There's lots of different ones you can support. Love God and love people more than you do possessions. Are there any questions? Does anyone else find this confronting or is it only me that um, feels like he's just been run over by by a steamroller?